Hello and welcome to the Josias Podcast, Episode 7. Uh, I'm your host, Joel, joined once again by Father Edmund and two distinguished theologians this time, Mikhail and Timothy. Mikhail is at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology in Steubenville, and uh, Timothy spends his time at Blackfriars as well as the ITI. Uh, and what we just heard was the gorgeous and very appropriate for Holy Week, St. Matthew's Passion, Aus Liebe, uh, the second Harnenkor recording. When uh, we went to choose the music this time, Potter and I both had no question that this performance of this piece was the only choice for Holy Week. Uh, and uh, I believe our guests actually uh, uh, have... Uh, either met or, or attended lectures of Harnenkor. Is that the, is that the case? Yes. I, when I was a student in gymnasium in Salzburg, I went uh, just across the street from our school. Harnenkor was working with ensembles, and Bach was what he was working on most of all at that time. What struck me about him was the deep religious resources that he had and that he brought to bear on the music and was able to explain to the musicians how to get there. Uh, it, it was quite amazing to see a kind of pedagogy in the faith. Yeah, I really think his his St. Matthew's passion is just so beautiful because he's sensitive not just to the Baroque in general, but to the, the religious character of the piece it's always seemed to me yes and it seems to me that Bach with Bach Hanukkah of course is Catholic Bach was Lutheran but at the time of Bach one can say Lutheranism was perhaps closest to the Catholic tradition absorbing very much of the mainstream Catholic tradition. I think it comes out in this particular piece. In Luther, there's always the fear of damnation. And he has well, struggles for his life, trying to make sure of the divine mercy. But what seems to be not so clear in his theology is the primacy of God's love. 
Sometimes it looks as if God were the angry one who needs to be uh, appeased by venting his wrath. And uh, that's quite different from the tenor of Bach's music in this particular piece, which is absolutely central in the St. Matthew's Passion. Yeah. Uh, um, right. So it comes, so this piece comes uh, in the Passion right after Pilate has asked the people um, what crime, what evil uh was in Übles getan? What evil has he done um, about Christ? And then uh, the, there comes the recitative, listing all the good things that our Lord has done to us. And then in this aria, the soprano sings, out of love, uh, my Savior wills to die. And in the architecture of the St. Matthew's Passion, pieces are symmetrically arranged around that center. The, the crucify calls and also the arrangement of arias around it and chorales is symmetrical. So Bach emphasizes this piece also musically. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So Tim, uh, tell us your Hammond <laughs> well, story. Um, I have very fond memories of him, but only, only because I, I gate crashed a birthday party of his. Um, uh, well, obviously, I have I have very I have wonderful memories of his concerts, and I have many of his recordings. But my, my brother was performing under his direction uh, with the Chamber Orchestra of Europe, and that that was a high point of Harlinkor's career. The, the the great cycle of Beethoven symphonies that they did together, um, and that it coincided with his seventieth birthday at the uh, the Musikverein in Vienna, and my brother got me into that party. Um, and he told me that I had to pretend I was a, a um, an employee of Teldec, which I, <laughs> if anyone asked who I was, I would say that. Anyway, um, Cecilia Bartoli was there and a number of other luminaries. And it was, it was a wonderful occasion. And he, he seemed a, a, a wonderfully humble, a humble man. Um, and, and I think that comes through in the religiosity of his, of his music. Um, I wanted just to add something um, to what we've been saying about Luther and Bach, um, because I think this is a good launch pad into the subject, namely Luther's um, great devotion to the sacred humanity uh, and, 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 and the tenderness of, of, of Lutheran piety regarding the sacred humanity of Christ, um, <clears throat> which is exemplified in, in the beautiful prayers of the Passion. But there, there's, there seems to be a, a very important difference between how Luther is regarding the sacred humanity of Christ and how the Catholic tradition is, in that Luther, as, as, as Mikael um, uh, hinted, that Luther is, is perceiving the sacred humanity as a shield, <laughs> you know, is that which undergoes the, the wrath of God for our sake, um, and which, as it were, comes between us and God's wrath. And that's where the mediation seems to lie for Luther as a kind of, um, you know, like a lightning rod that absorbs all that, all that fury and power for us, um, rather than, of course, God himself disclosing him, himself in and through this flesh. Um, so 
I think that's the fundamental difference between um, what inspires the Catholic tradition uh, to, to love and adore the sacred humanity of Christ and what inspires Luther to, to, to adore it. Um, uh, I, 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 and, and right. So I think we're ready to turn now to the atonement. So let me just, before we start discussing this and uh, our theologians explain everything, uh, to me, the, the sole uh, amateur layman here, uh, we normally talk about political subjects and we normally talk, uh, politics with a small p, we, and we normally talk uh, a little bit about philosophy. And this is our first time talking about theology proper. And uh, on my own case, part, it's partially because I feel so uh, inadequate to the subject. Uh, but it's also because sort of our, uh, when you think about the common good, you have a subject that you can talk about and you can appeal to anyone reasonable, at least in theory. Uh, and when you start talking about the, uh, the atonement, as we've already seen, uh, if you're a Catholic, ultimately, you're going to hold that the Catholic Church is the place where you find the truth. But it's good to do these things. It's good, particularly in Holy Week, to think about these things and not to worry about what the world thinks about you or what uh, others think about you, but just to speak the truth boldly. Uh, yes, yes, I agree. Uh, though one can, one can make a case, I think, from ordinary experience about the Catholic understanding of uh, the atonement, if, if that is relevant, I would, yes, uh, go ahead. Go that ahead. would be interesting yes, to go please. into. Um, for example, when you think through what is needed when two people who love each other have a falling out, one of them, for example, in a marriage, breaks the union between the two of them, one can raise the question, what is needed for union to be reestablished? And in English, atonement comes from at one meant. So it's the process of making one what was divided. And the only thing that seems able to reunite people when such a break takes place is love. Although the labor of love is very different on the part of the innocent party and on the part of the guilty one, the innocent one has to let go of any claim and other people's faults committed against us are, in a way, a power that we possess over them because we can blame them. Uh, on the part of the, so the innocent party has to let go of that power over the, over the other person. The guilty one has to, in a sense, re-experience from the point of view of love what he or she did and that's necessarily painful. They have to assume, take upon themselves the guilt of the act and suffer through it. And that's what changes the relationship of the person to the act. Not that the act is made undone, but um, the relationship of the person to it 
changes fundamentally. So in human experience, we are familiar with a process of atonement. It becomes more complex, of course, when you're dealing with Christ, and that's something we should go into. But th there are philosophical, philosophically formulable grounds. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded um, when I, in, in undergraduate, uh, studied the Trinity uh, my senior year, uh, of course, the Trinity, St. Thomas teaches us, is a mystery, and it's known by faith. You can't get to it by reason. But it was of great comfort to me to see how uh, reasonably it could be defended. And I think that, that that's the same thing that you, you demonstrated very well. The atonement itself is often thought of uh, by modern people uh, as a sort of, I get the sense sometimes when I'm talking with, with my more uh, modern, sophisticated friends who, who don't have faith, that they think of it as a sort of atavistic, bloodthirsty thing and, and, and wonder how you could believe in it. But in fact, when you examine it, I think you see that it, it's, it's, it's a mystery of faith, of course. Uh, you know, we, we don't get there by reason, but it's very reasonably defended, as it were. Yeah. Could I, if I could yeah. just come in, that, yes, go ahead. what Mikael said at the end um, about there is a likeness between the, the, the disturbance in human relations and the disturbance between the, the creature and the creator. Of course, that there is, but there's a, the fundamental unlikeness is very important for, to help us understand the atonement in that in, in the case of sin, the, the the, the offended party has lost nothing. Um, so nothing needs to be restored to the creator. Nothing needs to be restored to God, but something needs to be restored in the relation from the creature to the creator. So on the side of the, of, of the creature to God, there is a disturbance, there is a wound, there is a breaking. Um, and that's very important because then we see for whose good is this um, th this drama? And it is all for the creature's good. Uh, it isn't because God in some way needs it, but the creature needs to be able to do this. Um, and then, of course, one remembers from Anselm the, <laughs> that wonderful, um, you know, that that great insight that is, of course, it is for the creature's good that he be able to to make an act of supreme self-offering and love, but he is unable to do it. And it is God himself in the incarnation who, who, who enables the flesh, his flesh, in his sacred humanity to offer himself perfectly in perfect love on, on, on behalf of the human race for the good of the human race. Um, so uh, anyway, so, so I... I I think I think real you know realizing that the real relation here is from the creature to the creator, and it's that relation that's harmed by sin. Um, uh, I think that's absolutely vital because because then we can start to understand the drama of the passion and the cross, something undertaken by God in the flesh. That's the first thing for the good of the creature, um, and. and yeah, and seeing the, the the object of 
of, of what Anselm calls satisfaction is really the, the relation, the relation of the creature to the creator. Um, because that is, that is what has been violated and disturbed. It, it's not, it isn't that God is in need and God has lacked or God's, anything has been deprived from, from God's majesty by sin. But rather, of course, it, it is the creature that is wounded and it, and it is the relation of the creature to the creator that has been disturbed. Yes, that that makes perfect sense. Uh, and one can add perhaps to that, that even in human friendship, in human love, one experiences what happens to the other person. And in a sense, one takes... Yeah on oneself the mm -hmm. difficulties of the other person and um, as God God in himself and his divinity mm -hmm. can suffer but in his humanity he yeah, indeed. can yeah. Mm -hmm. be in us in mm -hmm. a way in which as God mm -hmm. he cannot this is I just wanted to say that this, this is where the patristic testimony is so important and complements the, the, the medieval testimony, at least that which started in Anselm and which St. Thomas largely perfects. Because the, the patristic testimony is, is enthralled by the fact that, that, that God has assumed flesh. <laughs> that, you know, it, it, they see it... As, as, as a condescending movement of divine love into the human condition, into suffering and into death, and f from suffering and from death, which is, of course, a consequence of sin, from there there's this recreatio. Um, th th so this wonderful image of, 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 of the sovereign creator um, uh, condescending into human suffering and death and, and, and working a recreatio from those depths. Um, whereas when you turn to Anselm, the, 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 the emphasis is much more on, 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 on created causality and instrumental causality. The, the human love that ascends um, in Christ. So if the Father see it as a condescending movement of, of the light into the darkness, the uh, St. Anselm sees it as the ascending movement of human love to God. Um, so it's, I think it's vitally important to see both aspects of condescension and, and ascending movements uh, in the Passion and Cross. Yeah. Yes, and there are some passages, there are some passages in Luther where he takes up this idea yeah. of the wonderful exchange, yeah. the admirabile commercium, as the Latin theologians call it, um, mm. as a spousal event that is an event of love, which God in his love takes on himself what is ours to give it, us what is his. Yeah. So maybe let's let's step back a little bit and put this into the context of salvation history. Let's try to put this um, as obviously as yes, possible please. and, and uh, <laughs> starting with the, with the first 
the first things so that, you know, even uh, um, so what if we look at uh, the the beginning of the history of uh, humanity with God, um, what is the reason why God creates humanity and what is sin and how does it destroy that uh, relation between humanity and God? I think Augustine has an extremely important discussion of this very point, and he sees sin as a voluntary defect of love. That is, that God creates us for our good, which is his glory. Those two coincide. The response to that gift would naturally be a return of love. And the fall, as Augustine understands it, is not so much a choice against God, but a defect of love out of which then that choice grows, the choice to eat from the tree. That's the symbol mm -hmm. in the Genesis narrative. Yeah, so every, every time a human person acts, um, every time we do something, every time that's really a human act that proceeds from reason and will, um, it's directed towards our final end. Um, and so if, as you say, God... Um, is our final end, our good is his glory, they're identical, then to, um, to act truly as a human is to act out of love of God, to act, to have the, uh, the reason why I choose to do any act should be finally the love of um, my highest good and last end, which is God himself. So in sinning, since there's this defect of love, Implicitly in my action, when I take the, the forbidden fruit or whatever it, the sin happens to be concretely, implicitly yeah. with my action, I'm saying God is, is not my good. Yeah. Yes, I have to take care uh, of my own good if, against him. If, if I could him. just step in. I, I don't hear everything, unfortunately, because it, it breaks up occasionally. But um, the notion of sin as contra naturam is, is, of course, essential in understanding its consequences, um, because um, there is a way in which the consequences of sin are the almost the inevitable metaphysical development of its choice, um, the the turning away from from God is the turning away from the from the source of one's life and the ground of one's being and the source of one's own coherence. So. It, it, one would expect that to be a, a literally disintegrating thing to do. Um, and uh, I, this is something that Josef Pieper explores. How the, the, the suffering and death ought come from a free uh, denial of the creature, of its true good and end and God. Um, what do you think about um, yeah, absolutely. So, the, mm. yes, I think that's exactly right. The, the wages of sin are death, not in the sense of right. um, 
right. the, the wages that are positively paid by some kind of arbitrary yes, decision, exactly. but yeah. as a necessary consequence so, of what sin uh, is, death follows. And it, and it seems that the way this, this works, as you've been saying, is if we prefer some more immediate but lesser good to the uh, more immediately evident to our senses, uh, is what I'm thinking, but to the highest good, which is God, uh, I wonder if you could say something about this, uh, uh, theologians all. Uh, is it then that uh, every sin will be a sort of idolatry where we replace God with, with some created yes. good? Yes. Yes. Um, what one can say is that if the bond of love with God slackens like a rubber band that snaps, then the, it snaps back on yourself. So pride is the first default motion of love that follows on the defect of love. And then a pride already is, a, is as a consequence of that defect, preferring oneself and one's own greatness. Um, so the preference is not the root, but a consequence. The root seems to be a defect of love, a voluntary defect of love. Right. So if pride is the first consequence of, of sin, which is a, a, a deformed um, exaltation of the self, but it seems that then the further consequence of sin is to become enslaved to some other creature that is more powerful than you. So um, you have, in again, Tim was talking about the, the, the patristic witness to this, and the fathers talk a lot about humanity being under the slavery of uh, the devil. So you begin by, by exalting yourself in a way through, pr through pride because of your defect of love, but you end up, in fact, enslaving yourself to other creatures, um, to, to lesser things and uh, then to, to the powerful spiritual creatures who, um, who can then overpower you and use you for their own purposes. Yeah, and the sensible goods as lower goods, which are very much related to the self, play a big role there too. So already there on that level is a kind of idolatry, but uh, once God disappears, our orientation towards something final and ultimate yeah. doesn't disappear. So necessarily if we I fall into idolatry. In oh, sorry. So... Um, no, I, I just wanted just right, go uh, ahead, on, go ahead. on this theme, the other great strength of the of the patristic understanding of of the redemption is that they they recognise that the consequences of sin are not merely moral, but are but are ontological. Um, that that human nature has been corrupted. You know, the, 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 the they see that metaphysical consequence of sin very very clearly um, and so what is required is not um, the appeasement of the slighted legislator but a thorough reworking and restoration of human nature that now suffers from uh, passibility and mortality um, 
and, and this is another great difference between the fathers, I think, uh, and Anselm in a way, in, in that the, the fathers see the impotence of man resting upon the fact that he is now corruptible and mortal, um, and that there's no, he can't cope with the consequences of his sin. Um, of course, we, we know that Anselm presents that in a slightly different way, you know, the, the, the idea that the such is the, the majesty of the offended, uh, who is, of course, infinite God. Therefore, man can't cope with the consequences of sin because the sin has a, has a kind of infinitude <laughs> um, by virtue of the, of, of the status of, of God. But I think it's really important to see, as the fathers do, that the consequences of sin are beyond, uh, are be, are beyond our ability to cope with because they are of the ontological order um, in that human nature is now uh, corruptible and mortal. And as we know, all the, the powers of the soul are not, are, are not ordered. Um, so, and that's what, call, according to the fathers, that is what calls for the sovereign omnipotence of the creator to intervene at the extent to which he, he did. Yeah. So maybe maybe let's turn now to looking at the work of of our salvation and Could I ask one which is the work question? of the atonement. So just, um, and not to spend too much time look, on this, but I, I think it's yeah. something that uh, uh, modern people tend to struggle with. Uh, so by turning away from God, uh, how do the fathers, how does St. Thomas see that as meriting uh, deserving death, even if even if later we're, we're, we're redeemed. Could you all say just some, uh, a brief something about that? And then I do think we should take Potter's well, excellent suggestion. If you read, if you, when you read um, so, um, Athanasius and, and his successor, uh, Cyril of Alexandria, they, they describe sin as man's turning away from the life. Um, so, for them, the movement of the creature away from the source of their life and the assertion of the self is, is a, a death-embracing action. Um, and that's how they see it. Um, I don't know if anyone has anything to add to that, but it seemed, it, for, for them, it, it, it's inevitable that the choice of the creature over the creator will result in, in a corruption of nature. Uh, the opposite example would be offending somebody, say a policeman, whom you offend and he gets angry. That would be, in a way, the opposite image. It's not so much yes. a problem. Exactly. The problem doesn't yeah. arise so much from yeah. God. It, it arises it from is, us. It, 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 isn't a, it isn't a penalty imputed from the outside, arbitrarily concocted by a legislator, it's the natural consequence of the choice. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, right. So if you turn away from life, that's to turn towards death. Um, so I, I thought we could maybe look at, begin to look at the work uh, of atonement. First, under the aspect, there are different ways that we refer to the same um, work that Christ did for us. We use different names. I want to begin with the, with, the name salvation. Um, I think it's it's uh, 
very important that our Lord um, comes to Jerusalem to suffer and die and to rise again uh, at the Feast of Passover, not at the Feast of Atonement, um, which is what you might expect, but at the Feast of Passover, which is a feast of salvation, of uh, rescuing. It's the, the feast liberation that, of Israel from Egypt, from the house of slavery. Exactly. Um, maybe, Pa, can you say some more about that? Yeah. The, the Passover was a feast commemorating the event of the Exodus, where the people had been enslaved in Egypt and the Egyptians were systematically killing the children of in particular the sons of the people of Israel. And the Exodus is the great liberation from that house of slavery and of death. Salvation always means you are in mortal danger. You, you, you don't get saved from a headache. Uh, you get saved from drowning. <laughs> right. From some headaches, maybe. Some headaches, okay. <laughs> right, but Israel was not Israel was not suffering from a headache. They were no. uh, enslaved by the, the pharaoh. And the killed pharaoh. systematically. Yes. It was a kind of genocide. The first recorded event of genocide of what Hitler later did Indeed. So, um, and let's let's look at a few of the other uh, names, as it were, that we give to salvation. So, um, we say also that uh, what our Lord did in suffering death on the cross was a sacrifice. What does it mean to call it a sacrifice? Tim, that seems like you're. Neck of the woods. Uh, I think we may be uh, lost, but we can keep going at this point. Yeah, we may lost. <laughs> oh, we we lost him. We lost yeah. the connection. Sacrifice. The word already expresses the main content of the concept. Sacrifice means to make sacred, to bring close to the divine. And Augustine defines sacrifice in this way. Sacrifice is any act performed to join us with God in a holy communion or fellowship. And it comes down to love itself. Love itself is the fundamental sacrifice. When one loves God, love has a unitive power one approaches God by love. The aspect of pain and destruction, which we often associate with sacrifice, comes in when there are some obstacles on the way. But in itself, per se, the notion um, of sacrifice is a positive one. And uh, Augustine drawing near uh, to God. talks about uh, the uh, four notes in every sacrifice uh, to whom the sacrifice is offered, uh, by whom it is offered, the offering, as in what is offered, and 
uh, on whose behalf it's offered, for whom it's offered. Uh, could you say a little bit about sort of the special way? Uh, so, so I mean, I guess like to take a normal, if 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 they sacrificed a lamb, they'd sacrifice it. Uh, the lamb would be the thing sacrificing. The priest would be the sacrifice, or the people's sins would be, uh, uh, or the people would be for whom it is offered and uh, to whom would be God. Could you say a little bit about how Christ's sacrifice unites those four notes in a in a special way? Yes, the the crucial idea or the crucial reality. Um, that makes that makes the sacrifice structured in the way in which it is is that he takes our place. That a sacrifice would be in the first place our love for God that would bring us near to God, but in the condition when we are bound in slavery to sin, that's not possible for us. So. The most deeply mysterious aspect of the atonement and of, and of sacrifice is that Christ takes our place, travels, as it were, that road toward God for us. The Gospel of John talks about it in those terms, that he comes from the Father and returns to the Father by his suffering, but he returns with us and in our place. So apart from Christ taking our place, it would be we would be both victim and priest for ourselves, and God is the one to whom that sacrifice would be directed. But when Christ takes our place, he becomes the great high priest who, as we're gathers all the obstacles against God and suffers through them so that evil is evil is really dealt with in detail the way it needs to be dealt with say in a relationship between husband and wife um, I want to go back to the first thing that uh, you said Papa which was that um, the the aspect of of uh, pain and suffering or of bloodshed that comes into sacrifice, or the second thing you said, comes in when there's some obstacle. That is, the nature of sacrifice um, is bringing something closer to God, bringing any work that unites us in communion with God, as Augustine says. Um, but the reason for the, the bloody sacrifices that are established in the Old Testament is that there is, um, because of sin, which we've, as we've discussed, is dis, uh, wounds this relation of the of humanity to God. There's an obstacle, and in a way, the the offering of of animals um, and even of of grain and other necessaries of life um, is uh, an expression of the interior sacrifice of the people that in a way does the opposite of what sin does. So if sin is um, a defect of love that leads then to a turning away from God to some lesser good, the blood sacrifices, especially in the Old Testament, are the opposite of, of that. They're a, 
um, a restoration of love that is expressed in the destruction of some lesser good, um, that even especially goods that are especially um, associated with life. Uh, that's why blood is so important, but also things like grain, which are, are the, the substance of life. That is the, the Grundlage of life. Um, so you're bread so in and way, wine. Bread yeah, and wine, so, the Eucharist. Exactly. So the, 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 the killing of the sacrificial victim or the burning of the grain um, or the breaking of the bread in the, in the Eucharist is a sign of, uh, as it were, undoing sin by doing the opposite. Yeah, you see, you see also it, it makes, uh, it, it sort of ties back into the first thing we were talking about when, when Mikhail uh, pointed out that uh, uh, perhaps Luther wasn't uh, attentive enough to the centrality of, of love in, in the Gospels. But, but you see, it also ties in with the Old Testament idea that uh, the true sacrifice that God really wants is a contrite heart and mercy, and in other words, uh, sacrifice doesn't doesn't merely become this you know hard thing that you might think of you know you might think of a, a child saying oh I don't I, why do I have to sacrifice something I think of this right now because I have little kids who uh, give up sweets for Lent and for them you would think this was uh, this was uh, <laughs> torture or something but sacrifice really at its at its core. Isn't isn't just something painful? Instead, it's really it's it's an act of love and of of union. Yeah, and giving up a disordered love, <laughs> losing losing the shape of a disordered love. It's like you've met my children. Shaped. <laughs> well, I had I had eight. I have eight children. So yeah, I am one of his children. I don't think we even mentioned that at the beginning. But, so he knows all about sin from uh, raising me. Uh, <laughs> and vice At this point in our podcast, another technical difficulty arose. Um, we were able to get Tim back into the conversation, but neglected to take the technical steps necessary to actually record what he was saying. We certainly need Elliot to come back from his coding boot camp to help us out uh, with the technology here. Elliot, our third host, please return. But anyways, um, that means that for the rest of the, uh, the podcast session, I'm going to try to summarize uh, basically what happened and give you little clips of the conversation that are still intelligible, even without uh, Tim's brilliant contributions. So we, we've been going through, Tim, uh, since you, you dropped out with the, the lost connection, we've been going through some of the names that we give to this mystery. So we talked about salvation and we talked about sacrifice. Um, in the question 48 of the Tertia Paris, where St. Thomas discusses the efficacy of the passion, the first uh, question that he raises goes uh, to that mystery that you were talking about, Pa, namely that he takes our place in a way. The first question he raises is whether Christ's passion brought about our salvation by way of merit. And the obvious objection that he immediately raises, of course, is that you merit uh, something for yourself when you do something good. 
so how can Christ merit for us? At this point, Tim explained that the key to understanding how Christ can merit for us is the mystical body. Christ, through his grace, communicates to us his own life um, as though we were all members of uh, one single physical body that uh, lives the same life. So we are, one, we are all members of one mystical body that lives one supernatural life. And um, this is the key to understanding how what Christ does can merit for us. And this leads then to a response of my father's that brings in Kant. Uh, here at this point, one can, uh, there arises the objection of Kant, for example, who thinks from the point of autonomy, the autonomy of the human person, so what I will is absolutely mine, and it's my doing and nobody else's. So he rejects the very idea of Christ taking our place or integrating us into himself as the one body. But the reason is that for Kant, the autonomous self is unoriginate. It has no origin. I don't receive it as a gift from the creator, but I stand in myself primarily and absolutely. Yeah. Again, one of, one of the phrases of Augustine is very relevant here, that God is more interior than my innermost. And I, and I think uh, to relate this sort of to, to, to stuff that we, we talk about on the Josias uh, frequently, if you think about this, uh, one of the other problems of Kant is, is he doesn't really, as none of the Enlightenment philosophers do, have a notion of the city of God in other words, of the common good of humanity, uh, which isn't achieved uh, individually, but is achieved yes. uh, as a body politic in a sense. And so that through the church, we finally, we finally are redeemed through the church, it seems to me, uh, because Christ as the head of the church atoned for our sin in this great act of love that was is death and passion. Yeah, whereas for Kant, the only function of the church, or the kingdom of God, as he calls it, is to allow for autonomous self-movement, of moral self-movement. That is to provide the conditions that make it more easily possible for every one of us to be autonomous, but each one of us is the final end of all things. Tim then expanded further on the mystery of the body of Christ, the mystical body of Christ, and this led us to a consideration of the philosophical doctrine of participation. Yeah, and this is this is impossible. This is impossible without some account of participation. That is, that our very being 
our being ourselves is something received as a gift. If it were not, if we, if autonomy, absolute autonomy were primary, then such an integration into a body could only be violent. Uh, but both, both in terms of the common origin and then the common good as a goal, uh, they're in an entirely different schema. We're, we're uh, coming towards the end of our discussion, but I wanted to to go to one of the names that we haven't uh, discussed yet, although we've used the name in the course of the discussion, namely um, redemption. What does it mean that Christ redeems us? From the Latin root, to buy back from slavery. So it's very close to salvation if you think of slavery as a deadly disaster. He, in a sense, buys us back from that condition. So um, if we've been, we've been sold into slavery, as it were, by sin, um, who, to whom does he pay the price of our redemption? It's not so much that he pays a price to somebody who, whom he owes suffering, certainly not to the devil, but that he transforms what we did, our sin, by his suffering, so that the, the older name of sanctifying grace was the grace that makes pleasing, gratia, gratum faciens, that is, that God, in looking at us, sees us as transformed. One can call that, in a sense, paying off a debt on our part, but one has to be very careful with that metaphor because it's not that God gains, uh, that God gains anything. As Tim was emphasizing earlier, what's at right. stake is our good. Right, and so not he, God's he frees good. us from the devil, but without giving the devil any... Uh, anything for our freedom. Yeah, I was going to ask, can we say a little bit more about the devil here? Because there is, uh, uh, for instance, Augustine will say in De Trinitate that uh, the devil had to be overthrown by Christ's justice. So we've gotten, you, I think you, you and Tim have, have explained so well that it isn't as if the devil was owed something in justice and, and, and he was the storekeeper and, and Christ was buying us uh, from, from the devil. Could you say a little bit about the sense in which things like that can be said? And, and even in, in the Bible, there's also some stuff that uh, whoever commits a sin is the servant of sin, things of that nature. In what sense were we under the bondage of, of the devil? In what sense does the metaphor even work? Yeah, well, when you look at the Exodus to which that word redemption is in the first place applied, Pharaoh doesn't get anything. Pharaoh gets the death of the firstborn in the whole nation, according to the story. But it is still in some way like freeing a slave by paying something yourself, that is investing yourself, doing something difficult. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's uh, the way Paul puts it, God did not spare 
his own son. But that is in some ways like paying back a debt, but not to anybody. Certainly right. Not, certainly not to the devil. We, we can say, though, I think, uh, uh, working off Matthew uh, uh, chapter 5, where, where he says, less perhaps the adversary deliver thee to the judge and the judge deliver thee to the officer, that although it wasn't as if it was just that the devil uh, uh, was able to hold us in bondage, looking at it from, for, uh, uh, from uh, his side at least, Nevertheless, it, it was just having done this this great sin that man should suffer even under the devil. Would that be fair? Yes, that's what sin embraces. Yeah, I'm just trying to say uh, it seems to me that there is some truth to the, there's a point of the metaphor and you have to be careful not to take it too far. Right. But also not to lose sight of where the metaphor actually works. Namely, that there's, Justice, yeah, to be and, that, done. and also that there's a real slavery. Um, not only, I mean, it's a twofold slavery. It's a slavery to sin itself, but it's also a slavery to other creatures having fallen away from the highest good, being God. You, uh, you end up subjecting yourself to creatures, and the most powerful of other creatures, um, apart from uh, grace. Uh, is the devil as the highest of the spiritual creatures. And so he uh, is the one who then ends up taking control of the world. He's the prince of this world in a very real sense, meaning that he rules it. At this point, uh, Tim then led our conversation back to um, the notion of sacrifice and spoke about why giving one's life uh, by suffering death is such a perfect expression of love. To love is to give everything and to give oneself and to take death willingly, to undergo death willingly is the perfect expression of the gift of self. That's wonderful. So we've, we've come to the end of our time. I wanted to say uh, something um, at the end, going back to something Joel said at the beginning, the, this this podcast uh, is usually concerns itself with um, with secondary matters compared to this. That is the uh, we have it's concerned mostly with Catholic social teaching and with the common good. But um, a lot of which obviously is I mean compared to the planes of uh, of sash, Catholic social teaching, as it were, the. Uh, the uh, the doctrine of, of atonement and redemption is the sort of vertiginous height of the mountain. The real politics, but uh, <laughs> the real exactly, and that's what yeah. I wanted to say. That this is this is the real politics, and much of what we've done on the Josias has to do also with the relation of um, the eternal city with the temporal city, and so the to understand the real politics, the politics of the eternal city. Um, is absolutely necessary to understand how we should go about living our temporal life as well. What a beautiful uh, uh, podcast this was for me. Uh, thank you so much. I learned from all of you, and uh, what, a, what a fitting 
thing to meditate on during this Holy Week. Thank you both. Thank you, Potter. Thank you, Mikhail. Thank you, Tim. This was really wonderful. Yeah, thank you, Joel. And thank you, Tim. Sorry about the technical difficulties. Thank you, thank you Papa. <laughs> yes. We should have you on again sometime. Indeed. It would be nice. Thanks. Thanks.